You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Michael Burlingame. Now, if you haven't heard that name, that means you haven't read any books about Lincoln because every (laughs) single book in the last several decades that includes our 16th president owes a debt to Professor Burlingame's research and writing. He's a world-class, multi-award winning, I could go on, historian. He has agreed to come on the podcast today to discuss a book that I read last summer called The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African-Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Equality. Professor Burlingame, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for your very kind introductory remarks. I'm, I'm flattered. Well, I mentioned your name to a couple of three other historians I know in American history, and it's the quickest response I've ever gotten from any of them. Oh, you, you got to have him on. Like, no one knows more than he does. Nobody. Well, that's so you've written several books on Lincoln, including the what is universally acclaimed as the standard definitive biography, two volumes of the 16th president. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that. But I was absolutely captured by your book about President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln and President Lincoln and the question of slavery, black Americans during that entire time period. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy, a lot of fulminating, not always informed, but also by informed people about the relationship and Abraham Lincoln's actions on this topic. Did you set off to write this book as an answer to any of those criticisms or controversy, or was it something that's been stirring in your mind for a while? 
Well, uh, I, I was inspired to write this particular book by an article written by a very fine historian named Kate Mazur uh, about uh, black people who visited the White House during receptions uh, during Lincoln's administration. And I, I knew about that because I had, I had uh, written about it in in my big two two volume biography of Lincoln, but I hadn't gone very deeply into it. And uh, she does, and so I thought, my goodness, well, I I, I should delve into this in, in greater depth. And uh, thanks to the the miracle of newspaper research uh, in databases that has so blossomed in the past decade or so, uh, you can do so much more research so much more easily. Uh, than you could even when I was doing the research in, in my previous books. And so uh, I dug into the question of Lincoln's uh, interaction with black people, not only at receptions at the White House, which was an extraordinary story, but also just in general. And I thought to myself, you know, this whole business about Lincoln and race and was Lincoln a racist and all that, one of the ways to examine that question is to look at Lincoln's interaction with black people in general. Not just in Washington, not just at receptions, but in general. How did he inter interact with black people in Springfield? How did he interact with black people in Washington who weren't guests at, at receptions? And I was I was struck by the uniformly positive reaction that black people had to their relationship with Lincoln. Now it's very well known that, that Frederick Douglass had some very positive things to say about Lincoln. But I was struck by how many others uh, had the same reaction and that, that Lincoln emerges from this study as, as an instinctive racial egalitarian. Uh, and I thought that needed to be said and that this was a, a way to do it that had not been explored by previous historians, at least in any depth. In a little noted eulogy delivered shortly after Lincoln's assassination, Frederick Douglass who I think belongs on the Mount Rushmore of the four most impactful people who were never president. Right. Called the martyred president, quote, emphatically the black man's president and the first to show any respect for their rights as men. Do you agree with this statement by Frederick Douglass? Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, I, I discovered that eulogy when I was doing research for this a long time ago, uh, for my big book, uh, while I was going through the uh, Frederick Douglass papers of the Library of Congress, at that time they weren't online. You had to go, go to the Library of Congress. And uh, I, I had a very thorough research design. Uh, I looked at his papers and saw that there was a folder marked Lincoln. <laughs> so I went into that folder. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, here's the, the speech that Frederick Douglass gives in June 1st, 1865. Uh, the last full day of mourning for Abraham. It's given in Cooper Union in New York, pr the premier site in the country for a public oration. And it's covered widely in the newspapers, um, but it was new to me. And I, because I had gone through five volumes of Frederick Douglass' speeches that had been lovingly published by the Yale, Yale University Press a, a little while earlier, and I didn't see that speech. Uh, and I, so I, I, but I did see the speech that almost everybody knows about uh, who studies Lincoln and race. And that is a speech that Frederick Douglass gave in 1876 uh, at the dedication of a monument to Lincoln in Washington. And in that speech, which is very widely known, Lincoln said, Abraham Lincoln was 
preeminently the white man's president. And we black people were only his stepchildren. And, I, and, but, and then I come across this speech where he says, Abraham Lincoln is emphatically the black man's president. I said, oh, wait a minute. How could I have missed that? So I went back to the five-volume edition of the Yale University Press collection of Frederick Douglass speeches and looked for it. And it wasn't there. I couldn't believe it. And so I wrote to the people at Yale and said, how is it that this speech was not included in this massive, mm. uh, five, huge five volumes? And I didn't get any response. So I called them and left a, a message and didn't get any response. <laughs> so yeah, now those of us who went to Princeton aren't surprised that Yale would conduct itself in this, this fashion. But you know, what can I tell you? <laughs> Mitch, Mitch Daniels, did you hear that? Did you hear that, Governor Daniels? <laughs> I, I'm a big admirer of his, by the way. Oh, good, good. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. He's a... He's a remarkable guy. Remarkable guy. I just wrote something today for the Wall Street Journal, just a, a response to a to an editorial saying Mitch Daniels, and I quote a, a speech that he gave as a commencement back in 2016 at Purdue, where he talked about what makes what makes people happy, what is really the source of happiness, and he says that all the scholars who've studied this subject agree that it's earned success, not winning the lottery, but earned success, where you set your mind to do something, you work hard to achieve it, and then you do it. Well, um, I hope that's it, true because my son graduated just yesterday from Purdue University. I'm a great admirer of what he's done at Purdue. My goodness. It's well, it's it's amazing. All my Indiana Democrat friends are about now turn the podcast off. So, <laughs> but, but I also know that, that uh, Mitch is a huge history fan, huge especially civil war. Uh, so he said he is the black man's president. He's Frederick Douglass says he's the white man's president. Could yeah. you say he's right on both occasions? And well, one is just tested or maybe um, I'm going to say tainted. So correct my verb tainted by reconstruction and the folly that was reconstruction. Right, right. If you want to understand the difference between that 1865 speech where Lincoln is described as emphatically the black man's president and the 1876 speech where he's described as preeminently the white man's president, you have to look at, at the context of the 1876 speech because it, it's really the outlier. Frederick Douglass has a bunch of things to say about Lincoln over the years after the assassination, and they're all, they're, they're all positive except for that one speech. Uh, and that one speech had a very specific context. It's 1876, April of 1876, and Reconstruction is going down the drain. Uh, there had been a very strong movement uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war to make sure that Black people would enjoy real freedom and first-class citizenship. And Congress passes a number of laws, and then there are constitutional amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendments, to guarantee Black people civil rights, first-class citizenship, and voting rights. Uh, and then uh, the uh, administration of U.S. Grant enforces those uh, amendments pretty rigorously in the late 1860s and early 1870s. But then, boom, a depression comes along in 1873. Northern public opinion loses interest in the fate of black people in the South, and everybody turns their attention to the economy, uh, which tends to happen when a major depression occurs. Um, and so... Uh, so, and Frederick Douglass is, is alarmed by this, as, as well he might be. And he has an opportunity now in this speech to address the power elite of the country. Because at this dedication ceremony, uh, in the audience were the president, uh, members of the cabinet, leaders of Congress, members of the Supreme Court. So it's the power elite. And so Douglass 
is trying to convince them, don't let Reconstruction go down the drain. And to make that point, he says, look, Abraham Lincoln started this ball in motion. In his last public speech, Abraham Lincoln called for black rights, limited black voting rights to be sure, but black voting rights. Uh, and he got murdered for it three days later. Uh, Lincoln yeah, absolutely. Won. That's exactly right. He got murdered for that speech. Exactly. And, and people don't realize this, that, that Lincoln wasn't killed because he issued the Emancipation Proclamation or because he supported the 13th Amendment. He was killed because he called for black voting rights. And, and John Wilkes Booth was in the audience on that evening on April 11th, 1865. He heard Lincoln say that he endorsed, he, he supported the notion that black people should be allowed to vote, at least those who had served in the army and those who were very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. Uh, and he turned to his companions and said, that means N-word citizenship. By God, that's the last speech he's ever going to give. I'm going to run. Sure. I'm going to run him through. And three days later, he killed him. Uh, it's, people don't appreciate that. So Lincoln really should be considered a martyr to black civil rights, voting rights, uh, just as much as Martin Luther King or Medgar Evers or any of those people back in the 1960s who were killed as they championed the civil rights movement of that era. So in any event, um, so, so Douglas is saying, and look, Lincoln started this process, not because he's some bleeding heart liberal do-gooder. He's a, he's a tough-minded um, supporter of the interests of white people. And he knew that it was in the interest of white people that black people should have first-class citizenship. So don't let that, don't let that initiative that he began uh, go down the drain. Um, it's, it's in your interest and Lincoln understood that and so honor that so I think that's that's the subtext of that speech but in a sense did he change his mind and when I read it I was like well but Lincoln's been dead for 20 you know well, however was, many 11, 11 years 11 years right. 11 years different so I took it as like he was upset upset at how things had turned to your right. point and right. was calling on them to stay the course. But it was pretty clear, or am I overstating it, that things were changing dramatically to the detriment of freed slaves and African-Americans throughout the country? Absolutely. Things were really good. In 18, between 1873 and 1876, between the beginning of the Depression and the, the time of the speech, uh, the uh, enforcement of the uh, of the amendments of the 14th and 15th Amendments and the legislation that had been passed to enforce them uh, was, in effect, uh, abandoned. And black people were told, well, we, we've done as much for you as we can. Good luck. Uh, and, th yeah. and through the mercy of, of white terrorists, in effect, in, in, the, in the South. So, uh, and, and Douglas was saying, you know, don't do that because, because Lincoln started this and he was your guy. He really cared about your race, but he realized that our race also needed to be uh, invested with rights if your race was to prosper. So, well, especially with all those Lincoln men in the audience. Right, exactly. It was the perfect, was the exactly. perfect message. Exactly. Um, Let me so, ask you a question that's that's going to be that that I'm going to tell you something that I think and you're going to say it's wrong because it is wrong. Well, we'll so see. I can see that it's wrong. In many ways. The failure of Reconstruction is as murderous a tragedy as the Civil War itself. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but it, it certainly is a tragedy um, that uh, that the effort to 
make sure that the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment were living realities, not just paper promises, uh, was a noble one. It was begun in earnest. Uh, it actually took hold for a while, but then then public interest waned, support disappeared. And so you get uh, Jim Crow segregation and you have a postponement of our 100 years of, of, of serious attempts to make the uh, uh, Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment's living reality. But but there's there, now, go ahead. There's there's a very cynical way to look at the Civil War, and, and it goes like this: that before the Civil War and Reconstruction, black people in the South were uh, employed as agricultural stoop labor and domestic servants. After the Civil War, after seven hundred fifty thousand men died, after the uproar of twelve years of Reconstruction, then. Black people in the South were largely engaged in agricultural stoop labor and domestic service. The only difference between the pre-war period and the post-reconstruction period is that in the pre-war period, the cabins were close together. And then in the post-reconstruction period, the cabins were far apart. And the importance well, of that. <laughs> that's a very cynical interpretation. But what it overlooks is this. That radical reconstruction, that is right after the Civil War, the immediate aftermath of the war with the 14th and 15th Amendments, the, the radicals insisted upon that being part of a, a readmission ticket that the former Confederate states had to punch. You had to agree that black people would have civil rights and voting rights and that that would be a federal right, um, a constitutional right. And those two things can get passed and they're incorporated into the Constitution. Now, after the failure of Reconstruction, after 1877, those amendments are in effect mothballed, or to mix the metaphor, they're picked, or they're put on the back burner. Mm -hmm. But they're there, they're there, and they're available once the conscience of the country is once again reawakened to the issue of racial justice, which happens in the 1960s for a number of reasons. Sure, and 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 because of those two amendments being passed back in, in 1868 and 1870, it was possible then to have the Civil Rights Act of 1864, of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and then subsequent legislation. And th those landmark pieces of legislation couldn't have been added, couldn't have been passed if it hadn't been for those amendments. So, so Reconstruction did laid the foundation. Uh, the first Reconstruction laid the foundation for the second Reconstruction of the 1960s in our own time. Before we get to Lincoln's history of slavery or with slavery, excuse me, before he was president, you know, we always think I read an article one time and I actually turned it into a speech to give to Civil War roundtables. And that is, you know, we we talk about how lucky we were to get Lincoln, like when this country has needed a strong president, somehow, some way we tend to find him at this point. But Lincoln uh, was also go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Link, Lincoln was also bookended by, in my view, the two worst presidents of all time. Absolutely. So how did we get so unlucky to get James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson? I know how we got Andrew Johnson, but at the same time, produce Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's is, is a, somebody once said, God smiles on drunks, fools in the United States of America. <laughs> uh, that's my man, Otto von Bismarck. That is correct. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, and this is striking. And I, I tell my students, look, it's very unfashionable day to uh, these days to talk about the great man theory of history. 
that most historians will poo-poo that and say, oh, well, you know, the historical change is really based on vast impersonal forces of demographic change and economic change and technological innovation and all that sort of thing. And I say, well, there's a lot of truth in that. But every now and then, an individual person um, can make a huge difference. And in the United States, <clears throat> in American history, George Washington is, is, a, is a classic example. If it hadn't been for Washington's leadership during the revolution, it's entirely conceivable that that war would have been lost. And if it weren't for Washington's availability uh, to become the first president, and so that people, people respected and trusted him, they thought, well, we can trust this new experiment, the Constitution. Uh, so the Constitutional Convention gets ratified because people knew that Washington was going to be the first president and they could trust him. But he was the only man with with that stature uh, at that time. And then as first president, he establishes the principles that that then uh, solidify the the the, the uh, draft uh, that the Constitution represented. Uh, and similarly, Lincoln, it's hard to imagine any president leading the North to victory other than Lincoln between the time of Andrew Jackson and the time of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and it just we just lucked out. We had a lot of mediocre people <laughs> in the White House in those days. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Lincoln comes along. So and it's just it's similar with Churchill. Just imagine uh, Britain trying to maintain its its existence with Chamberlain at the helm. Or Lord <laughs> or, Halifax. Or our Lord Halifax. Exactly. So Lincoln's pre-presidential history with slavery. It's very interesting to me because he refers back to it so often, you know, as he got older. Please tell the Leaders and Legends podcast audience, and we're here with historian Michael Burlingame. We're discussing his book, The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African-Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Equality. Talk to us for a few minutes about Lincoln's encounters with slavery in his youth and as an adult before he gets to the White House and how that shaped what he did and, and his patience, I think, because that's the big key to me is Lincoln's patience while he's in the White House. Well, uh, uh, the, let's talk a little bit of, first about, the, as, you, as you were mentioning earlier, Lincoln's exposure to slavery uh, on two occasions as a young man uh, at the age of 19 and then again at the age of, of 22. He has occasion to visit New Orleans uh, and to spend a, a lot of time there, um, taking a flat boat down the uh, Ohio, down the Mississippi, down to uh, New Orleans, um, then selling news and, and hanging out there and then coming back. And while he was in, in New Orleans, he saw slavery uh, close up. Uh, and it um, and this happens time and again to northerners. The, they th when, when they th when northerners in the antebellum period talk about slavery as an abstraction, well, that's one thing. Maybe we should be concerned about it. But when they actually see it in action, um, that that tends to radicalize them. Uh, and and Lincoln evidently was radicalized by his experience in seeing slavery and slave auctions in New Orleans. Then his he married uh, a. A woman whose family was a prominent slaveholding family in Kentucky. And so he would spend some time with his in-laws and they would also see slavery. Um, then he was a congressman uh, in his late 30s in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. was was a major slave trading uh, center. Uh, 
And so uh, you, you got to see slavery um, close up in Washington. And all those experiences tended to reinforce the, the radical impulse that I think originated in New Orleans when he was 19 and again at 22. Uh, and then, then the notion that black people um, are not inferior, that I think is, is driven home, not just because some people will say, look, Lincoln in Illinois didn't really know any very impressive blacks. Uh, there were servants and laundresses and cooks and handymen and that sort of thing. Uh, it's only when he gets to Washington and he meets people like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and people like that, that his opinion of black people really uh, becomes very positive. Well, I don't, I, don't th I think that is, is misleading. Um, that, that Lincoln in Springfield lived in a racially integrated neighborhood. It's just, just half a block down the, the street from him. Uh, was a Carter, uh, a, a, a UPS man, in effect, um, uh, and who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and uh, and and so Lincoln, Lincoln saw him regularly. He he uh, he, he used his facilities, um, uh, and his 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 bootmaker was also an Underground Railroad conductor. Um, one of the handymen who worked at his house was an Underground Railroad conductor, and these are people he knew who were very self-respecting. Um, and and more than that, he had a friend, his barber, who wasn't just a, 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 a person who cut his hair and shaved his whiskers, but was a real friend. Um, and, and who was educated, was literate. He played several musical instruments. Lincoln loved to tell stories with him. Uh, used, to, the, used to like to hang out at his barbershop and listen to him to play the, play the violin. So, so Lincoln's image of black people was not... Uh, as people who were step and fetch it, uh, right. subordinate. Exactly. Uh, so, um, so Lincoln comes to Washington with, with a with a pretty uh, a strong image of, of black people, and then it gets reinforced by Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and people like that. He wins. We just did a podcast interview with Ed Acorn about the Lincoln miracle, the the Republican convention that was happening in May of 1860. It really is a miracle. There's no way in hell Lincoln should have won that. And you can feel free to disagree, but it's just like one of those things you shake your head and go, how, to your point, how did we get so lucky? How well, did President Reagan, excuse me, how did President Lincoln's views on slavery, let's bifurcate it, between the time he's inaugurated in March of 61, March 4th, until he decides to issue the Emancipation Proclamation which happens after the Battle of Antietam, which is September 17th, 62, just discussing that time period. Sure. Lincoln, well, it, Lincoln seemed to have not been able to do what he wanted to do because his eyes were always on the preservation of the Union, first and foremost. Go ahead. Right. Lincoln, uh, Lincoln if, he, if he had had his druthers on March 4th, 1861, he would have issued an Emancipation Proclamation. But he couldn't. I mean, the Constitution, it was almost universally agreed that the federal government couldn't abolish slavery in a state. If a state wanted to do it, fine. The federal government could uh, abolish it in, say, the federal territories, because Congress has, according to the Constitution, complete control over the territories. They could abolish it in Washington, D.C., where Congress had plenary power, but not in a state. Uh, and so, um, so, so Lincoln was constrained by the Constitution and also by politics, that is to say, political reality, that Lincoln 
understood his job to be, once the war broke out, to win the war, to preserve the Union. And that everything he did as president should be in service of that goal. And so if he perceived issuing an Emancipation Proclamation as a uh, measure that would help him win the war, help the North win the war, then he could uh, support it. And, and he can go to the public and ask them to support it. But it took a while for that to develop. Uh, and that that Lincoln, behind the scenes, he tried to get Lincoln's plan to get rid of slavery um, was, was to have the individual states, uh, particularly the four border states who stayed loyal to the Union. When 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 the 15 when when, when the Civil War broke out, 11 Confederate states, slave states, joined the Confederacy and four didn't. There's the border states of Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. So Lincoln hoped to use uh, federal money to persuade Delaware uh, to abolish slavery, and then the slave owners would be compensated by federal money. And then once that started, and Lincoln draws up laws and tries to, and behind the scenes and tries to get them introduced into the Delaware legislature and passed, well, that, that fizzles. Um, then he goes public and he says, well, I urge Congress to pass laws that would subsidize the uh, liberation of slaves in, in any state, any state that wants to abolish slavery. We will come in as a federal government and we will pay the slave owners for fair market value. Uh, well, that that doesn't work out. Um, and it's only uh, and Lincoln begs the border states to, to he calls their congressmen and senators together and says, you've got to see that the war is going to demolish slavery. The mere, mere friction and abrasion of the war is going to lead to the abolition of slavery and take advantage of this offer. You at least get compensated. You get some money. And they were blind to their, to their own self-interest, those, those border slave states. So it's only then that Lincoln says, OK, um, I can justify emancipation as a war measure that we can weaken the Confederacy by encouraging slaves to come to our lines. They would then help us rather than them. It's a double win. It's a twofer. Um, so then and only then does Lincoln feel that public opinion has uh, matured and that a, a good faith effort bending over backwards to get the border slave states to abolish slavery on their own initiative had had failed. It is this time period let me ask it this. Let me ask you a question instead of telling you what I think, because you're Michael Burlingame and I'm not. <laughs> is it during this time period, the early of the war, that the people who chastise and critique President Lincoln on slavery, on the status of African Americans, is it this time period that they point to most? He has his exchange with Horace Greeley, where he says, if I could save the union, so on and so forth. I'll let you talk about that. It's, this is the time period, if memory serves. He talks a lot about colonization, sending the slaves uh, back to Liberia, sending them back to Africa. There's other Caribbean countries, islands that are thought of as well. In other words, Lincoln's point was, you're never going to get treated equally here. You're always going to have this stain. And it's not your fault. It's our fault. So let's put you someplace where you can succeed on your own and not worry about us. It seems to me that sort of two year time period until the issuance of the proclamation is where the Lincoln critics really train their fire and use it against him. Is that fair? Right. Exactly. Um, now, Lincoln, 
tells his cabinet on July 22nd, 1862, after the border slave states for the third time reject his advice and urging to abolish slavery within their states uh, in a constitutional manner. And so Lincoln says, all right, I'm going to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. So he tells his cabinet that July 22nd. And his cabinet says, well, okay, but it's bad timing. It'll look bad because we've just suffered a major defeat. We had a huge army try to take Richmond and we got repulsed. <laughs> and it would look like a desperation, insincere gesture if we were to issue an Emancipation Proclamation on the heels of such an embarrassing defeat. A last, a last shriek. Right, exactly. On on the the road to defeat. So, so 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 Lincoln says that's a good point. Well taken. I should have thought of that myself, but you, you made a good point. So Lincoln, try, try to imagine what Lincoln is then thinking for the next uh, couple of months between July twenty second and and September twenty second. Um, and in those months, um, uh, in in those months, Lincoln is is worried about what's going to happen to Northern public opinion once I issue this Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln is being told by his best friend in Kentucky, his, a guy that he was very close to in Illinois, slaveholder, and then moves back to his home in Kentucky. Um, and Lincoln is very, very close to this guy. And this guy is tells him, he says, you can't issue an Emancipation Proclamation without coupling it with colonization. That the people just won't put up with it. it, it it's it's politically impossible, and and all kinds of people are saying that 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 uh, emancipation is acceptable if it is coupled with colonization. That is a, a plan whereby black people would be allowed, not forced, but allowed uh, and and facilitated by the federal government to move to resettle abroad. Um, and so, uh, so in this period between July 22nd and September 22nd, Lincoln is thinking, how can I reduce the white backlash that I'm sure will follow once I issue the Emancipation Proclamation? So one way to do it is to say to the public, to demonstrate it, that, that he's really serious about colonization. Now, now, some people will tell you wrongly, as it, is, it turns out, that Lincoln was an enthusiast for colonization from way back. That's simply not true. Uh, that Lincoln Lincoln doesn't publicly support colonization until the 1850s. Um, he had passed up opportunities to to be an, a member of a colonization society in three or four different uh, areas in Springfield. Um, and then, and then only recently has been discovered a, a speech that Lincoln gives to the Colonization Society in 1855. Uh, and historians have often said, well, you know, if we just knew about the text of that, that would show that Lincoln was a hopeless <laughs> racist. Well, it's not true. It just, it's just turned up uh, in a newspaper account from a St. Louis paper that Lincoln, Lincoln addresses the Colonization Society in January 1855. And he said, well, you know, some people think it's a good idea and some people think it's not a good idea. And so, well, it's, 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 it's worth looking into. It's hardly an enthusiastic endorsement of colonization. But at, uh, at the time, in the, in the antebellum, 1850s, 1860s, in your view, was colonization a reasonable solution to racial problems in the United States? And did well, you think that Lincoln was? I Well, uh, it's hard to say for certain, but Lincoln, I believe, thought in these terms about colonization, that, that it's clearly impossible that 4 million people are going to leave the country and, and go, go abroad. Exactly. Um, 
Uh, it's just, you know, they're not going to go to Haiti because they don't speak French. <laughs> they're not going to go to Liberia because they don't speak African languages and they don't have customs and cuisine and climate and all yeah, that. These families have been there generation after exactly, generation. Exactly, exactly. However, having said that, um, Lincoln, I, I believe, thought that, look, there are there is a subset, maybe a small subset of the African-American population who are pessimists about ever having a chance to enjoy first-class citizenship in the United States. That, that white, racism is, white racism is too deep uh, too deeply rooted and too widespread for us ever to enjoy real first-class citizenship here. So we should we should go abroad. And Lincoln said those people deserve to have some kind of haven where they could go, and it's something that the federal government should facilitate by providing transportation, by providing help to establish oneself in this new area, uh, and that that. Colonization was therefore justified for, and he doesn't say this flat out, but I'm pretty sure this is this is how he thought, uh, is justified for, for that small subset. And there, there were a lot of Republicans who felt that way, too. They didn't believe, you know, th- there's a tendency to think that, oh, well, colonization is just ethnic cleansing. It's just a way. And, and for some, some people who supported colonization were ethnic cleansers, but, but not Lincoln and not, not other Republicans um, who shared that view that there was a minority who deserved to have some kind of support by the government so that they could find first-class citizenship in a haven overseas, even though most Black Americans were not going to follow that route. In this time period, let's just stick kind of the 1840s, 50s up to the war. Sure. What was Frederick Douglass doing? How did he make his name throughout the country as an order and as a thinker? And someone who really, who's to me, has the most powerful voice in terms of give us black folks a chance and we'll show you. Well, it's uh, Frederick Douglass was a a remarkable uh, speaker, very powerful orator and and who described his own experiences uh, as a slave uh, uh, and uh, spoke all around the country um, and was a very effective spokesman for the anti-slavery cause. Uh, and then, then he writes an autobiography, uh, a narrative of his experiences as a, as a slave, uh, and that that turns out to be a huge bestseller, very widespread, and people are really impressed by this. Um, but Douglas has to flee the country <laughs> because it rendered him eligible for capture under uh, the, the fugitive slave laws at the time. And then people purchase his freedom and then he comes back and and his powerful personality, his powerful oratory. And then then he's a very gifted writer as well as speaker. And so he writes not only his autobiography uh, and then another version of the autobiography in, in uh, the mid 1850s and then another one later on. Uh, but also he has he he runs a newspaper. He edits a newspaper in which he gives voice not just to his own opinion, uh, but also to those of uh, black people and also uh, white abolitionists who sympathize with the cause of uh, the anti-slavery movement. So uh, his his uh, power as a thinker, as an orator, and as a writer uh, was such that he to become a spokesman for African-Americans throughout that period. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction. Leaders and Legends 
LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest is preeminent Lincoln historian, Professor Michael Burlingame. We are discussing his book, The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African-Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Equality. Before Lincoln becomes president, does he have any relation, any friendship at all with Frederick Douglass? And during his time as president, what was their relationship like? Because it certainly wasn't all, didn't come off as all wine and roses. Exactly. Uh, Lincoln and Frederick Douglass meet for the first time in 1862. I'm, I'm sorry, 1863. Um, but the first time that Douglass mentions Lincoln in his newspaper is in 1858, when Lincoln is running against Stephen A. Douglas for the senatorship from Illinois. Uh, and, and Lincoln is giving uh, very powerful anti-slavery speeches, and Douglas uh, has some very positive things to say about Lincoln uh, based on those speeches, which were widely, widely, the, the, these, these were the speeches in the debates, which were widely covered in newspapers around the country. Uh, then when Lincoln becomes president, um, uh, Douglas is, is disappointed uh, by Lincoln's failure to make uh, the abolition of slavery a top priority uh, for reasons that we mentioned earlier. There were constitutional constraints and political constraints. Um, and, and Lincoln believed that if he prematurely issued an Emancipation Proclamation, it would ruin the chances for the North to win the war. And unless the North wins the war, the Emancipation Proclamation isn't going to make a bit of difference. Uh, so first things first. Um, so uh, then uh, Lincoln and Douglas meet for the first time in 1863. Lincoln has issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and uh, uh, Douglas, Douglas had been critical of him in 1861, 1862. And he was particularly critical of him uh, in 1862. When Lincoln uh, invites uh, a delegation of black people, black leaders from Washington, D.C. to come to the White House. It's the first president to have black people come to the White House to consult on public affairs. So these five gentlemen come uh, and Lincoln uh, brings with him, has come with them, a stenographic reporter. And Lincoln then gives a lecture to these gentlemen urging them to become pioneers to establish a colony in Panama where blacks who were despaired of ever achieving first-class citizenship in the U.S. could go to, to, to be a haven where they could enjoy first-class citizenship, which they never would in the U.S. Um, uh, but Lincoln's tone is somewhat condescending. Uh, and Douglas goes bananas and, and denounces Lincoln as, as in the most, uh, he's a hopeless racist. He's a hopeless supporter of slavery. Meanwhile, two of Douglas's adult children sign up for the program that Lincoln is endorsing, which is, and you think, wait a minute, if Lincoln is a hopeless racist, why are Frederick Douglass's adult boys <laughs> signing up to go into this program in any event? So, so in 1863, uh, things are changed. Lincoln has issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, he has started to recruit black soldiers into the uh, authorize the recruitment of black soldiers into the Union Army. Uh, and and Douglas Douglas wants to come to the speak to Lincoln uh, because he's he's a recruiter. He's, he's urging black people to join the army, but he's upset because black recruits are getting uh, second class treatment. They have less pay um, and, and they can't become officers. They always have to serve under white officers. 
um, and they run the risk of being executed if they're captured by the Confederates or at least re-enslaved or enslaved. Um, so he comes to the White House uh, to ask Lincoln uh, to issue an order of retaliation, which actually Lincoln had recently done, and also to, to treat black people to make sure that they were better treated in the army. Um, and so uh, that, that's the first meeting. And, and Lincoln assures him that, that his heart is, is with him, that, that he is constrained by political concerns uh, that have to be taken into account. And that that all that the black people will be paid the same as, as white people in the army, but that's going to take a little while. But and, and it was and that did happen. Um, so Douglas is, is is favorably impressed, uh, but not overwhelmingly. Then the second time that Lincoln and Douglas get together is in 1864. And this is a really interesting story. Uh, this it takes place in August of 1864. What at a time. When the Union armies are stalled, Grant has failed to take Richmond. He's bogged down at Petersburg. Sherman has failed to take Atlanta. Um, the Red River campaign is, is a fizzle. Um, and and the, the northern public opinion is, is turning against the administration. The, an enormous number of casualties have been taken in the overland campaign against Richmond and, and, uh, and, and very little progress. And so the anti-war movement, uh, the peace movement, uh, is gathering a lot of steam, and Lincoln thinks he's not going to win re-election. Uh, and he, one of his thoughts is, if a Democrat wins, which seems likely, the war is going to be ended, slavery will still be intact, the only blank people who had been enslaved that will be uh, freed are the people who make it to union lines before the new president is inaugurated. So, so Lincoln calls Douglas in and says, look, black people aren't coming to our lines fast enough. Uh, you'll sometimes hear it said that, that uh, the slaves freed themselves because they just, they, they, so many of them fled to union lines that they were just overwhelmed and the Lincoln administration had to issue emancipation and all that. That's not true. Uh, and this is, this is good evidence. Lincoln is saying black people have to, we have to encourage them to come to our lines. And Douglas says, well, the, the slave owners have a very uh, apt way to dim radio-free Washington, as it were, um, <laughs> that, that the message isn't getting out. And Lincoln says, well, would you organize a group uh, that, that would then go out into the uh, penetrate Confederate lines and tell the slaves who are behind Confederate lines, come to Union lines, because then you'll be free um, and, and you can't be re-enslaved. Uh, and, and it's just sort of like what John Brown was, was proposing um, with John Brown's raid. It was, was, was very similar to that. Um, and, uh, and Frederick Douglass says, oh, well, yes, Mr. President. So he goes off and he, he sets up this elaborate scheme in keeping with Lincoln's suggestion. But meantime, before he submits it, Sherman has won the Battle of Atlanta. Um, Sheridan is starting to win significant victories in the Shenandoah Valley. Farragut is having an, a, a, a victorious experience in Mobile Bay. And all of a sudden, the public mood brightens. Lincoln's reelection is reassured. And so uh, the, the Douglas plan isn't carried out. But, um, but that's very interesting. And, and, and Lincoln convinced Douglas that, that at, at that meeting, 
in a way that I don't think he did in the first one, that he was truly, deeply opposed to slavery and meant that it should die. He, and he says that quite quite emphatically. And the third time is when Douglas comes to Lincoln, hear Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address. And well, you just goes, anticipated my last question, not my last question, but my next question, because it's one of my very favorite. I have several great. There are several, the Civil War is, gets, is underrated. Absolutely. When it comes to being a quotable war. Uh, my favorite is Hal Cobb, who I believe is from North Carolina or no, Georgia, Georgia. Georgia. He's from Georgia. And the quote is, and I'm, I, th- I think I'm going to get this 99% correct. So please, please correct me. When the South is, is deciding that due to its manpower shortage that they need to arm slaves arm black southerners Hal cobb who was a big wig in the confederate government said if the, if the former slaves will make great soldiers then our entire theory of slavery is wrong right right um which which is interesting too because they did make great soldiers not necessarily for the confederacy but they didn't <laughs> but the, the confederates didn't ever really change their theory about slavery so setting that aside, my other favorite quote, and I'm going to let you say it, I won't, I won't say it, is when Frederick Douglass meets Abraham Lincoln after Abraham Lincoln gives what is universally regarded as a monumental speech in the English language, and that is his second inaugural address. Professor Burlingame, go. Okay, so Frederick Douglass attends Lincoln's second inaugural, and, and Douglass is particularly impressed not by the... Final paragraph, which is the one that most of us think of these days when the second inaugural was mentioned, uh, with malice toward none, with charity for all, and and so forth. Uh, Douglas says that, um, that, that he was really moved by the paragraph that immediately preceded that, in which Lincoln addressed a question that had been on his mind for some time. That is, why has the Civil War gone on so long? Why have so many men died? What's the ultimate purpose of this? Why did God allow this war to begin? And once having allowed it to begin, why does he allow it to go on and on and on? Why are so many men dying? Why are so many widows and orphans being created? And he writes a memo to himself asking these questions. And he says, I don't know. But then when the time comes for him to give the second inaugural address, he has an answer to that question. And in, he incorporates it into the, the second inaugural. And um, and he says, uh, the Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quotes from the Gospel of, of St. Matthew, uh, the words of Jesus. He says, Jesus says, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto the man by whom the offense cometh. Lincoln goes on to say, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come. And having passed through his appointed time, he now wills to remove. And that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due unto them by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which believers in a linking uh, in a living God have always ascribed to Him? 
fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. But if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Well, this is this is a tremendous idea you know, that that here's the president of the United States. Instead of giving a, a victory lap speech, which people more or less expected, the, the war was just about over. The North was clearly going to win. Um, and what is that? Lincoln gives this speech in, in which he's, he's try, trying to say, let's not be too self-righteous um, and let's not be vindictive and punitive and all that. And, and he's saying that that we that white people are paying um, for the sin of having enslaved black people. And an, an amount of white property will be destroyed equal in value to all the back wages of 250 years. So it was a Lincoln thinks of the United States going back to 1619, not 1776, but uh, 1619. Uh, and that all the back wages that have been denied to those, those slaves has to be matched by an equal amount of destruction of white property. Until all the blood that has been shed by the overseers and the owners uh, uh, from the slaves then has to be compensated by an equal number of bloods, uh, amount of blood shed by white soldiers. Well, and, and Lincoln says, we can't be sure that that's the case. But if it is, then the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Well, Douglas was blown away by this, as, as are most people, once you stop to think about that. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy most in going to Washington is going to the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And as you probably know, yeah. when, you, when you stand in front of that magnificent statue on the left, you see the left wall, you see the text of the Gettysburg Address. And on the right wall, you see the text of the Second Inaugural. And what I find particularly touching is that parents with young children read the Second now, that paragraph is pretty tough syntactically, sure. <laughs> but what children are being taught is that this is really important. This is something we honor, and this is a part of our tradition that we can be proud of. Um, and I find that very, very moving. Well, and so so did, of course, Frederick Douglass. So, so he, he goes to the White House. He wants to congratulate Lincoln. He's he's denied admission because he's black. That's, that's, that's the part of the story you just <laughs> right. you cringe, cringe. Right. And and even though there, there were four occasions earlier when blacks were admitted to White House receptions, um, but it wasn't the, 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 not all the police had gotten the memo. Um, exactly. So so Frederick Douglass has stopped. And so Frederick Douglass, he's a congressman, passed by, he says, I mean, knows him. He said, would you please tell the president that I'm being detained, not admitted? And uh, within, a, within a minute or two, the word comes down, admit Frederick Douglass. And so Douglass goes in to the reception area and there's a great long line and Lincoln is shaking hands and. And uh, and so, well, no, there's my friend Douglas. Uh, Douglas, there's no man in the country whose opinion I value more than you. What did you think of my speech? And Douglas says, Mr. President, I can't jump the line. You know, got all these people. No, no, no. I, I really want to hear what you have to say. And you, know, I, I often wonder, well, what was Douglas supposed to say? Right? He said, well, Mr. <laughs> President, I thought I thought that the the uh, the use of the biblical image was a little inappropriate, and that that uh, that the syntax was a little garbled. Uh, 
<laughs> he actually chooses a very apropos term. He does. It was a sacred effort, Mr. President. Um, and I wonder um, how, Link, you know, Lincoln better than anybody who's alive today, who could possibly come on this podcast. What do you, what, what would Lincoln's reaction to that have been? He clearly esteemed Douglas as a man, as an intellect, as a thinker, as a writer, as a speaker. So, you know, it's kind of like you being called smart by Mitch Daniels. Like, how would that make you feel? Well, it's uh, uh, Lincoln said once apropos of Frederick Douglass um, that uh, that uh, he admires him um, because uh, he, uh, like Lincoln himself, had really started off at the bottom of his social and cultural milieu and had raised himself up to be a, a successful spokesman for his people. Uh, and that uh, that uh, that uh, that Frederick Douglass is therefore to be considered one of the most meritorious men in the country. So, uh, pretty strong language. Um, As we all know, so, a few days later, on April fourteenth, Abraham Lincoln is shot. He dies the next day. It's I think seven twenty-two. Is that right? That's correct. Because you and the reason that I know that, well, besides just reading like an idiot all the time, but is it isn't it is it true that that clocks and furniture houses and those places always set the clock to seven twenty two when it was in the store? A lot of them did in that in those days, yeah. 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 Said, what was Frederick Douglass's reaction to Lincoln's assassination? He was he was deeply upset, needless to say. Um and and nothing illustrates that more. Than what we talked about earlier this uh, this afternoon, and that is uh, when Douglas delivers a eulogy on Lincoln, um, uh, emphatically the black man's president, the first to rise above the prejudices of his time and his country, the first to acknowledge that black men had rights which white men were bound to respect, uh, and um, it was a stunning tribute to, to Lincoln. And it's just it's astounding that that speech is is hardly known, although a book has just come out um, in, in the past few months, a collection of uh, writings by black Americans uh, starting uh, in the pre-war period um, uh, and then going right up to the, the 1960s. So black people writing about Lincoln and finally in this collection of uh, writings by black people about Abraham Lincoln, you get that, that 1876 speech, um, 1865 speech, uh, emphatically the black man's president, but also a December 1865 speech in which Frederick Douglass, which is also omitted by the Yale people. Um, and Frederick Douglass says uh, in this speech, um, when, when Lincoln gave his final speech, which, of course, he didn't know was going to be his final speech on April 11th, 1865. I was there and I heard him for the first time call for black voting rights. But I was disappointed, as were a lot of my abolitionist friends, because of the limited scope of his endorsement. Only It only applied to veterans of the Union Army and to the very intelligent, by which we assume he meant the literate. And so, so that limited scope disappointed us. But, but Frederick Douglass says in this speech in December 65, we should have known that that was a very important speech because Abraham Lincoln learned his statesmanship in the school of rail splitting. And to split a rail, you take a wedge and you insert the thin edge of the wedge into the log. And then you take a hammer, a big maul, it's called, 
and you drive home the wedge and it splits the log. And what we should have known was that what Abraham Lincoln was doing on April 11th, 1865, was inserting the thin edge of the wedge publicly. And having done it publicly, because he had done that privately in a letter to the governor of Louisiana a year earlier, but having done it publicly, you could count on him having inserted the thin edge of the wedge to drive home the thick edge of the wedge. And I think that's true. And it's a brilliant image, and it's a speech that deserves to be much better known. Uh, and, uh, and and it is incorporated into this, this new book that the University of Illinois Press has recently published. You mentioned we have a few minutes left with Professor Michael Burlingame. Before we get to the same five questions, we ask all of our guests. Uh, actually, I should say that they were answered by another Princeton uh, thinker, a man named George F. Will, who we had on the podcast. Oh, really? I, yes. I just... I just invited him to be our banquet speaker in Springfield in uh, February, and he accepted. <laughs> I, I may have to buy a couple of tickets. Is that okay? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so a few minutes ago, you talked briefly about kind of the great man theory of history. Right. Obviously, since his one of his many nicknames is the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln has gotten a tremendous share of the quote unquote credit for ending slavery and changing America's path. But like a lot of folks, whether it's Andrew Jackson or Thomas Jefferson and others, he gets reevaluated. And now you mentioned a few minutes ago about slaves, the school of thought that the slaves freed themselves. So between Lincoln being the great emancipator and the slaves freeing themselves, where's the happy medium? Well, there's a lot of truth in the notion that that slaves, by fleeing to Union lines, uh, did free themselves. Um, and it took a lot of courage, oftentimes, to, to to run the risk of being caught and badly uh, whipped or even having your foot chopped off or hand or being sold south to the to the deep south. And slavery was terrible in the upper north, <laughs> the upper south, but it was really terrible in the lower south. Uh, so it took a lot of lot of courage to to run away, um, and then of course there were a lot of slaves who whose masters ran away, and and they were just there, <laughs> um, which happened uh, particularly in uh, early in the war in the Georgia and Florida and Alabama, uh, 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 South Carolina Sea Islands. Um, uh, but uh, the uh, fact is that that the uh, that that Lincoln. And the Lincoln, and this is this is something that's insufficiently appreciated, that emancipation did not begin, formal emancipation did not begin on January 1st, 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been announced in September 62, goes into effect. Um, emancipation really begins, federal emancipation begins significantly on August 8th, 1861. Because uh, the Lincoln administration, uh, uh, Lincoln had, had approved two days earlier a statute that had been passed by Congress known as the First Confiscation Act. And the First Confiscation Act said that slaves running away to Union lines who had been employed in a military capacity or a military support capacity by the Confederates shall be admitted and not returned. 
that the Fugitive Slave Act will not be enforced in those cases. But it only applied to a very small subset of slaves, that is, those who were being employed by Confederates to dig ditches or build fortifications or to serve as body servants to Confederate officers or obviously in support roles for the military. When the Lincoln administration issued orders to the officers in the field about how to implement this, they said, in essence, admit any slave who comes. Because how are we, how are we going to prove whether they were? How would, all they have to do is say, yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I built, I dug ditches. Or I, I, you know, what are you supposed to say? You've got a video, you know, <laughs> you've got a witness. Um, <laughs> but it's perfectly reasonable to think that that's exactly what they did. <laughs> well, and so, so, so the, the Lincoln administration, by very broadly interpreting the ways in which this should be interpreted, let any slave who comes. Um, whether whether he's, he says that he's been employed as a quasi-military asset for the Confederacy and uh, admit him. And if he brings a wife and children, admit them too. And so tens and tens of thousands of slaves are freed by the Lincoln administration and its very generous, broad interpretation of the way in which the first Confiscation Act should be implemented. And that's that has been a that that very important point was made by a very fine historian, James Oakes, in, in a very important book called Freedom National that came out a few years ago. So. I don't want to get too. So, so Lincoln was the great emancipator, even as early as well before the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and, Without and, getting into the uh, Confederate war generals and all that, Robert E. Lee and all that stuff, there was at least one occasion where a statue of lincoln was moved and that is the statue oh, of the terrible terrible yeah i was just I, that's the last question i want to ask you about this topic before we get to the five questions i th i thought it was that most of what's being done with regard to confederate names and such is on point to a large degree my big beef and if i had written a gotten my phd in civil war history what i wanted to write about was my that after Lincoln won the second time, there was no chance in hell that the Confederates were going to win and they should have surrendered then. Absolutely. And, and that everything after that is is more murder than war. There's less honor uh, than there was before, whatever argument you want to make. So putting that aside, the 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 statue where it had the, the freed slaves at Lincoln's feet, which I believe was paid for by uh, black business and such 150 years ago, 100 and however many years ago. Uh, it was, is it in Boston, was it? Where was it? I can't remember. The statue is in Washington, D.C. A copy of it was in Boston. This okay. is the statue that was dedicated with Frederick Douglass as the main speaker back in 1876. And it was built uh, by uh, a white sculptor, but it was black people contributing money. Uh, some of them just, just, and lots of them were former uh, soldiers in the Union Army. Um, and it, it shows Lincoln holding up the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and it shows a slave who, and who sometimes interpreted as kneeling before Lincoln. And that's not true. If you look at the statue, what he's doing, he's rising. He's broken the shackles, and 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 the Emancipation Proclamation has, has has something to do with that. But also, his own effort has something to do with that. So he's rising, but that's been interpreted as as insufficiently. Um, 
politically correct. Uh, and uh, then the, and the folks in Boston, the authorities said, oh, well, this is this is hopeless uh, uh, misinterpretation of history. And uh, so we're going to we're going to put this statue in cold storage. And, and there have been an attempt to get the one in Washington removed. Um, but that. And, as, and, and what does Michael Burlingame think about that? Does it oh, a matter of ideas? It's go ahead. I think it's a terrible idea. Now it's been suggested that that in that park where the in in Washington where that statue uh, is located, a statue of Lincoln and, uh, and Frederick Douglass say together, or uh, Frederick or a, a standing slave. Well, that, that'd be fine too. And, and, and Frederick yeah, Douglass. That's right. That's exactly right. More, not less. More. Right. Exactly. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Burlingame, are you ready? Yes. What was your first job? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I actually made some money as a, as a, as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a caddy at a country club. <laughs> That's awesome. Number two, what was your first concert? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I'm a big opera fan. I can tell you about my first opera, which was a, a performance in 1962 of uh, Poncielli's La Gioconda. I can tell you the cast, but I won't do that. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh, my goodness. Um, the Collective Writings of Abraham Lincoln. Number four, this is, you may just hang up on me for this one. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, well, to be in Richmond the day Lincoln entered and to see the, the response of the, of the black people. Uh, uh, we have a number of verbal uh, accounts of that, which are very moving. Um, but must, just, you, just to see it and to hear it and to feel it, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that. You must kneel only to God. Right, right. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Hmm. Gosh. Uh, um, well, somebody with a really broad range of interests uh, who writes about a number of interesting subjects and, and, uh, and thinks yeah. about them. Uh, and Sounds like George F. Will. That's exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NF. P, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest has been Professor Michael Burlingame, author of several definitive works on Abraham Lincoln and his times, but we focus today on his latest book, The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African-Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Equality. According to Time Magazine, and this is a direct quote, Burlingame may know more about Lincoln and his era than anyone in the world. Thank you, Professor, very much for your Thank time. Thank you today. very much, Rob. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. 
If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.